hello, my name is Charles Olson. Welcome to Pod for the Planet. Uh, I am here today with my friend and my new co-host, Romel Pacheco. Uh, Romel, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Romel Pacheco. Um, I'm a junior at SUNY Plattsburgh along with Charles here. I'm an environmental studies major with a minor in planning and geography. I'm from the Bronx, New York. Awesome. Uh, we are here today with uh, Dr. Lauren Eastwood, a professor of sociology here at SUNY Plattsburgh. Uh, Lauren, welcome to the pod. Why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks for having me on. This is really nice. Uh, I'm a professor here at SUNY Plattsburgh. I've been here for well over a decade, but um, yeah, my expertise as a sociologist is in environmental sociology, um, but I also am really interested in uh, inequalities and how those play out. So yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Uh, so we are going to be talking today about the social justice teaching that we all went to uh, this past Wednesday. Um, Ramel, uh you were here last year. We were all here last year when there was uh, an incident that happened with uh, Snapchat that was sent around uh, that had a couple of racist remarks on it. Uh, in response to that, the administration and the faculty decided to host the social justice teaching this year to try to bring awareness to some inequalities and social justice issues here at SUNY Plattsburgh. Um, any thoughts? on how it went, on the attendance. Uh, how did your lectures go, Lauren? Yeah, so I thought it was great. I mean, everything I've heard has been really positive. I mean, obviously we know that a social justice teaching isn't going to address the uh, dynamics that we face in terms of uh, institutionalized racism, and uh, but it's a step in that direction as far as getting people's expertise out there. Um, and the teaching model was a lot of, of fun for me to use as a way of, of talking about those issues. It took the pressure off to be, you know, all presenter-like, and, and it was much more casual and, and uh, interactive. So I appreciated that, the whole history of the teaching as the model that we were using. So I went to, uh, I went to about six or seven of the presentations, um, and they ranged from uh, yours, Lauren, which talked about climate justice uh, and environmental justice issues, uh, to inequality, uh, immigration issues, uh, debt, uh, and economic issues. Um, Ramel, did, was there any that took you? Um, I, I went to two. Um, I went to uh, the colonization of Canadian indi indigenous peoples, and um, that was really interesting. Basically, we did an activity where we're, we were all on blankets, and we represented the indigenous peoples of Canada, and uh, the blankets represented our land. Mm -hmm. And basically, the speaker would come, and he would say different events at different dates that happened that basically took our land or killed us. So he would say, oh, in this year, there is this war. So now we had to fold our blankets up because our land was being taken away and that caused us to be, you know, closer together. And then another event was, oh, we're taking some of your children to go into reform school. So whoever has this color index, they go over in this corner. And then, oh, whoever has this color index um, signifies the people that the kids that died in the reform school. So it was it was it was tough. It was like this. This is this happened. Yeah. 
Yeah. It would be interesting to do that for the U.S. as well. I mean, clearly the Canadian model isn't so different from ours. So clearly there is a great connection between social justice issues and environmental issues. And I think that's a great way to segue into your lecture that you gave about climate justice. Yeah, so I mean, I tried to structure it in a way that was accessible and kind of hit on the main points. But of course, you know, in half an hour, you really can't do a whole lot. So, right. I mean, I I think what I attempted to do was to put it under the larger umbrella of environmental justice. And certainly, you know, some of the stuff that you just referenced, Charles, in terms of the dynamics that Native people have historically experienced, and this is ongoing. I mean, I think that it's interesting to think about the history that's led up to these circumstances, but also the current dynamics that are so important for us to think about in terms of indigenous people and how uh, resources are still being stripped from their land um, in ways that have real repercussions. But so, right, I was, you know, setting this up as an environmental justice dynamic, kind of in a broader sense, uh, where people who are marginalized, whether it's economically, racially, et cetera, or a combination, of course, of all those factors, um, experience environmental damage disproportionately. Um, So people who are wealthy essentially can buy their way out of dirty jobs, uh, lack of access to health care. I mean, one example is that we see here in the United States a lot of our coastal property is worth a lot, and it's also uh, insured. So, uh, well, that's actually interesting. Where I, uh, I'm from Bellport, New York, and my my town. The whole reason I've gotten into this field is because my town was s- extremely segregated along those lines. I grew up. Uh, basically, the divide was north south uh, mm-hmm. uh, with a railroad. I was going to say, highway uh, running were there tracks the there? Yeah, there were tracks. I lived on the north side of the tracks in a predominantly minority, predominantly impoverished neighborhood, uh, and just south of the railroad was. Uh, about 97% white and 97% like above, like way above the poverty line. And they lived along the water, uh, the south shore of the island. So it's definitely interesting. There's the uh, the phrase NIMBY or right. not in my backyard. Exactly. Uh, and we, uh, my neighborhood, we had a landfill closer by. Which the, the statistics show that that get. would happen. Yep. Um, so that's where my stake is. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, research shows that three out of every four toxic waste dumps are located in communities of color in the United States. So, yeah, having that sense of where does our waste go? Where do where do environmental problems go? I mean, not only um, looking at, at sort of the wealth that's located on uh, coastal areas in the United States, but flip that around and look at pe- uh, places in the global south, where people use um, the, you know, waterways for subsistence purposes. And so being hit by something like a hurricane here in the global north, yeah, there there are huge repercussions to that, but most of people's homes are really uh, well insured. Obviously, we have situations like Katrina uh, that demonstrate those inequalities really still exist here in the global north. But there's a very different ballgame where there's very little infrastructure uh, in the global south. Um, and by global south, I should probably define my terms, the previously colonized places that, I don't, but historically we've called it the third world, but that's pretty problematic, or developing countries. And as, from an environmental standpoint, that's also problematic. So 
Um, and then the global north being where most of the wealth of the world is, is located. So, so right, so in my talk, I wanted to, to kind of set up environmental justice broadly, um, you know, the sort of justice implications of how we've, we've uh, expected people who are marginalized to experience environmental harm at disproportionately, and then apply that to the climate. And a changing climate creates all sorts of problems for people who are already marginalized, whether it's uh, lack of access to food or food becomes more expensive or uh, lack of access to water, um, desertification where, where land that you could grow food is now turning into desert, uh, increasing uh, weather events like uh, you know hurricanes, flooding, et cetera, and those af affect people um, disproportionately, clearly, based upon their access to resources. So, and the, and the big irony, I guess, with climate is that folks who have created the problem are not the ones who are experiencing the uh, negative impacts. And of course, that's, that's an oversimplification because I just gave Katrina as an example. But, but I do think it's really important to point out that the climate isn't just that the earth is changing and, and we should be concerned about um, species loss and that kind of thing. I mean, we should, but on, we should also, yeah, we should look at how there are gross injustices um, that that need to be addressed. This is fundamentally an ethical issue in addition to uh, ecosystemic issue. That uh, that reminds me of what Dr. Shia says. Dr. Shia is um, one of the professors here in Plattsburgh, and um, she says that we're not studying to save the environment; we're studying to save ourselves. So that's like a different perspective on things. Because without the environment, we're not going to be here. But you know, without humans, the environment's going to it's going to continue doing oh, its sure. thing. sure. The so. earth will be around. Yeah. Yeah, and then to take that, I mean, I totally agree with her, but that doesn't take that in one step further. Who's Who will be saved? Um, so the, from an environmental justice standpoint, there are plenty of people who, through environmental degradation, are going to do just fine. And then there are other people who are not going to do okay. And so, you know, it's not just the hu humanity that we're trying to save. But, um, but saying if if the planet is not habitable for humans, you know, there's there's a lot of folks who, who are working on figuring out how, with their resources, they'll be okay, and that's really problematic too. Climate change uh, creating a lot of issues for people in the global south, and they're going to have to. You said uh, desertification, uh, and the loss of arable lands. So there's going to be famine and stuff. We see a lot of this in the Middle East. Um, Ramel, you brought something to my attention about the connection between climate change and violence. Yeah, I, um, I found some research articles on the connection to um, climate and violence. And basically, there's evidence that the risk of armed conflict outbreak is, is enhanced by climate-related disasters, um, usually in ethnically fractionalized countries like the Middle East. And um, and I'm actually going to say a quote from the um, the article. Um, Although we find no indication that environmental disasters directly trigger armed conflicts, our results imply that disasters might act as a threat multiplier in several of the world's most conflict-prone regions. And the article is talking about mostly um, North and Central Africa and parts of Central Asia, since they're both um, ex exceptionally vulnerable through, um, 
for from um, anthropocentric, um, uh, sorry, climate change, mm-hmm. and they all have um, deep ethnic divides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important piece to add to this, uh, and we've seen that with Syria. You can trace major droughts in the region uh, just prior to uh, massive amounts of of um, conflict in that particular region. Absolutely, that if and it's it's fascinating to look at this too because in some ways, the fact that these are um, becoming sort of violent and militarized brings it into the purview of things that the U.S., for example, is able to address on a federal level. So seeing it as a security issue um, allows for a discussion amongst people who would otherwise not be willing to talk about it. That's not to say that I'm appreciating that it's a security issue, but it's fascinating to see how it is that that certain um, ways of framing uh, the problem or the realities of the problem um, are it, allow it to get more uh, attention. So if we if we're looking at military in, intervention, for example, or uh, instability, you know, I'm sort of speaking as the State Department would instability in a region or something like that. To uh, our per- national interest. It, to in our in national, particularly to, yeah. places where we have economic interests, exactly. Congo, for example, that sort of thing. We will then. Um, focus more on on how to address it i think that's a that brings up a bigger issue about the way that we uh, as a scientific community are framing the issue of climate change i think over time since al like since al gore in 2000s like the way we framed the argument for addressing climate change has drastically shifted we're being more personal with it so we're learning to pinpoint certain communities and how climate change will affect them and i think that that is why we are seeing so much success currently in the past like couple of months with actually moving the agenda forward on climate change is because we're shifting the way we communicate with the people that are going to be affected from this. I'm talking about uh, people in Appalachia, mm-hmm. uh, people in the Midwest, the farmers, uh, all the people that essentially voted for Trump and don't want to believe in climate change because it was framed as an issue for the coastal elites uh, for so long, now we're starting to see that shift in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, and something that that I would like to hear what you folks think about, um, something that I found to be a really effective framing has been coming out of folks who are young people. Um, And so I remember at one of the UN climate negotiations, the youth who, you know, that's one of the groups of folks who can get involved as non-governmental organizations is a, a sort of youth contingency. And they were wearing T-shirts that essentially said, where will you be in 2050? And of course, here are all these, you know, people who are <laughs> older and probably we will not be around in 2050. And it was partly related to one of the things that was being negotiated was sort of how can we stop this particular process so that by 2050 we are down to X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, in terms of parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and that kind of thing. And so they took up that line and really called into question, um, you know, what are you folks doing to the planet and will you be around to see the repercussions of it? 
And I think that that's really effective. I mean, we've seen it with the school strikes um, and, you know, the kids who are coming out and saying this is this is the legacy that you're leaving us. That's an interesting framing. I mean, also the, the lawsuits that they've been. So I'm, I don't know if you guys have seen the video uh, that came out a couple weeks ago of the children uh, in the Sunrise Movement. Uh, so the Sunrise Movement uh, is a climate change activist group, uh, and they posted a video on the Internet of a group of young kids, like we're talking between the ages of uh, like, seven and 17, uh, went to Senator Dianne Feinstein, Feinstein of California. They went to her office and they were trying to plead with her to get her to support uh, the Green New Deal. Um, and she argued with them. Wow. She just went full out and was like, I know what I'm doing. Um, and I think that is an example of some of the stuff that's wrong with uh, the politics and with the politicians in relation to how we're going to address climate change. Uh, and I think that brings up a couple of questions of what are we going to have to do as a country, um, as a collection of countries, like you said, with the United Nations, what are we going to have to do to address the issues, not just of climate change, but the issues that climate change will bring to us? Can I actually say a point about that video? Um, I remember when you showed that to me, um, there was, Diane said that she has grandchildren. She has, I think she has seven grandchildren, that she has grandchildren. She knows, what, she knows what she's doing. Everything that she's doing is for, you know, the future. So she knows that her grandchildren are going to be okay. But the thing is that, like, she's, a, in a per, she's in a place of power and wealth. So that statement that she said doesn't, it doesn't, you know, I feel like it doesn't qualify with the kids that she was talking to who are obviously not in a position of power or wealth to be protected from future climate change um, uh, ramification. Yeah, and that ties directly back into that question of like who, who's, who is this going to be a problem for? And obviously for everyone on some level, but for some much more than others. And, and yes, to dismiss that those kids had something to say and something to contribute is really problematic. I mean, because in many ways, like that was something that someone mentioned to me after my talk. I had been saying, uh, you know, I was sort of talking about people who are didn't create the problem but are experiencing the repercussions of it. And in some ways, there are a lot of kids coming from a position of privilege um, who are saying we didn't create this problem, but we're going to experience it? So they're using their privilege to to, to talk about how they can make change, um, but they're also in that same position of not having created the problem, and yet having to deal with the repercussions of it. Going back for a second to the question, uh, what what would, do you think the United States should do uh, for climate refugees, uh, both? in the United States with people having to move from areas, so flood victims, people who are affected by superstorms that are going to become more frequent over the next 10 to 15 years, uh, and people who are going to be moving into our country from places like the Middle East, uh, from Central America, due to uh, uh, an increase in violence, which can be attributed to climate change, famine, uh, drought, um, what do you think we should do? Well, I mean, we need a whole overhaul of our immigration system and our asylum system. Again, I, this kind of gets into areas that 
we could also spend an entire podcast talking about, but are really important. I mean, I have some pretty radical views about immigration, as you might imagine, um, in the sense that, uh, you know, I find the whole system of nation states to be pretty archaic and based upon geopolitical power. Um, and so when we're talking about who gets to enter a country or leave a country or, you know, our mobility and our privilege as, as U.S. citizens to basically uh, travel the world and live where we want, um, a lot of that is is based on our exploitation of people who are now seeking help um, or are being forced into um, climate migration and that that sort of thing or or other forms of migration related to violence and and other dynamics so yeah I mean the the whole the whole immigration issue is fraught with politics that I think need to be examined uh, a lot of people are examining them, but they're also being, um, but we don't have the right solutions right now. We need to take responsibility for what we've created in terms of circumstances that endanger people's lives, whether it's by creating violence um, and they should be considered to be uh, seeking asylum legitimately, or uh, whether it's by making their lives more tenuous um, because of our our use of fossil fuels and the fact that we've built our wealth on on that model. So um, given the context though of our current debates and how superficial they are about immigration, how we are talking about it as an us versus them kind of situation and and I'm glossing over the details but I do think a lot of it does. Um, it's just really hard to have conversations about what actually needs to happen, uh, which is that we need to open our our borders. We it's just frustrating to me that the fact that we have borders in the first place. I understand, but the nation state is just so problematic. How can we assign some sort of economic value to the damages that are being done to the global south? Um, and if we can do that. Who should be paying for that stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, so there are some um, some negotiations that are taking place under UN climate uh, policy arenas that are intending to address that. There's a whole part of the policy process that's called loss and damage. Um, and that started... Uh, a while back with these these critiques that the global north has created these problems it, it it started when the kyoto protocol basically was being thrown out because um countries in the global north had signed on to a legally binding agreement to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions yet um then there was a retreat from that um as i'm sure you, you know from your courses uh that that countries were not willing to be part of an agreement that all countries were not engaged in. But yet there is this um, discussion that, you know, who should be paying for for the, the damages um, and the losses that countries are experiencing um, that further marginalize them. I mean, let's be realistic. What is going on here is not just 
um, that that some countries are experiencing problems and others are not, it's a further entrenchment of the inequalities that cur currently exist. So as people's lives become more tenuous and they experience poverty at greater levels, I mean, this will further the inequalities. Globally, we're seeing that happen. So there is room for that discussion in the UN negotiations, but it, but it doesn't have much teeth. Just to be like, just to throw out an, a hypothetical here, I'm my thought with it is that in in our capitalist society, we want continual growth. Our entire economic system is based off of the idea that we will continually each year sh sell more stuff to pe people. Will buy more. Um, it's the treadmill of production. Um, my thought is is that if there's a huge amount of the human population that isn't available to buy upper end stuff, more expensive stuff, or able to get jobs in the economy, wouldn't though wouldn't it be like in our best interest as capitalists to include more people to buy the stuff? To well, that's sort of the Fordist model, and that's so 1900s. <laughs> but, but I, 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 but like yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, but I think the way capitalism is currently working is much more on, a, I want to use this kind of as a, like a metaphorical, but on a Bitcoin model, like in the sense that, that. On belief. On belief, yeah, and, that and that, so the, yeah. It, there's a sort of uh, fictional, obviously currency has always been fictional to some level, but that. The, the growth now is extensively fictional. Uh, if you look at it, it's people trading futures, for example. I mean, um, so you can make money off of something that hasn't happened yet and that might not work. So, I mean, we saw this with the subprime mortgage situation, how there was a massive amount of money that simply did not exist. Yeah, right. Wait, 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 so I'm not familiar with invest in the futures? Future, yeah, trading in futures. Um, so... Typically, so I understand it in the context of like agriculture. So let's say you uh, a farm company is able to sell the future, like the idea that they will produce X amount of corn. And then people who can invest in the belief that that company will produce X amount of corn. But if they do not produce X amount of corn, they produce like say one half of X, then the person who invested in that future lost money but or or you can trade on the shorts like say, saying that the, that it's not going to produce that and exactly and make money off of somebody else's demise nice. yeah yeah i mean it's so so it's kind of fucked it's, right it's it completely is i mean and i'd like to say i understand it better i mean it's fascinating because i mean maybe i shouldn't admit this on a podcast but i've recently been interested in the stock market because i've invested $420 in pot stocks, but anyway. Nice, nice, <laughs> gotta get it started now. And that amount was intentional, but. Um, perfect, perfect. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out exactly what's going on with the stock, I'm, I'm learning. I, I also just started investing, not in pot, it's kind of a good idea, <laughs> but I, uh, I just start, I opened an investment portfolio with uh, Swell Investing. Uh -huh. This is not an advertisement for Swell, but if Swell <laughs> is listening, I would like an advertisement. 
Um, <laughs> the, the ad revenue would be nice. Um, but Swell Investing, what they do is, is it's called it's impact investing. Um, and it's the idea that if enough people invest money in renewable tech, uh, green infrastructure and all this stuff. That would um, be Swell. Can, yeah, exactly. So it would be very Swell. So the Swell investment portfolios only invest in um, in basically like what we would consider, yeah, socially responsible portfolio. So there's no fossil fuels, no any of that bad stuff. Uh, I have a couple hundred dollars invested uh, in a portfolio across uh, health, uh, clean water, disease eradication, renewable energy, green infrastructure, um, and it, it it's fantastic. It the growth is on par with the S and P 500, um, which is just a fancy stock term, <laughs> um, but yeah. it, it's interesting to see what um, the pairing of the economy and how mm-hmm. environmental issues Absolutely. fill in. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the sort of like your question, wouldn't we want more consumers? Yes, consumption is a huge part of this, um, how you mentioned the treadmill of production. and and and. And not only do countries want their economies to expand, but it's a crisis if they don't. So that's a fascinating dynamic, too, to sort of see. Again, you, you, we were talking earlier, you know, what sort of interesting news things did you encounter today? It's impossible to read any news uh, without seeing something about um, how some economy is doing uh, and whether it's healthy or that kind of thing. I just read... Uh uh, an article this morning about how in February only 20,000 jobs were added to the See, American exactly. economy. And it's like something like that. I You could read something about that all the month and it's constantly like consumer okay, confidence exactly. or yeah. growth in this quarter. Like uh, lives are organized around like our imagine, imagination or our understanding of of the world is dictated by our economics. economics. Yeah. yeah. And so Thank that, you Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the founding fathers. But yeah, so, right. So, and how that has become so accelerated in a neoliberal age, I, yeah, to then speak of inequalities and, uh, and environmental injustices is really important to, to raise those concerns. That also brings up the issue of how the Global South uh, and these developing countries play a role in the global market, uh, the stuff they produce. So uh, talk about uh, cash crops. What is development? Oh my, okay, so this is a really good question. Like, do you mean like from a standard viewpoint or what it should be? Let's do, yeah, let's do both. Okay, so so from a standard viewpoint, right, it's like, it's extremely problematic and I'm gonna start ranting just a tad, but, um, and by a tad, I mean a lot, but so, it's based on this 1970s model, prior to that, actually, that every country on the planet should have the same, essentially be made over in our image, and our meaning the United States and, and Europe. Um, it's just a really problematic model. I mean, it takes away all kinds of understanding of cultural differences and, and not to mention um, like what the, the environmental implications of that would be if, if every country uh, had the same income level that we do. Uh, but it also, I mean, what the dominant development model doesn't take into account is essentially an analysis of who 
it's it's based on GNP, GDP, GNP. Um, it's not based on well-being. So I think that's a, tr- a good transition point to sort of say what is it versus what should it be. Um, so if current development models are saying, oh, how do we get people's um, incomes up or how do we get a, a country to show that they have more economic activity? Um, and yes, cash crops is a huge part of that. Uh, historically, you know, the indebtedness that, that countries in the global south experience being related to post-colonization and how they were encouraged to take on a lot of debt in order to build infrastructure that would then facilitate their ability to get goods to the market. I mean, that whole model is so problematic because it doesn't tell us anything about who's benefiting from that particular system and who and whether people's lives are actually better off. So what should it be? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I often encounter people in the context of the United Nations who are very critical of this development model. Um, not people, not the governments who are negotiating the policies, but people who are coming there to, to tell their stories. And they understand that development is, is essentially you know, colonization in sheep's clothing and that it's very much about maintaining a production economy that, that Charles, that you were referencing. So for them, the autonomy to be disconnected from uh, the global economy in a way, not necessarily to say, oh, let's get back to nature or anything of the, you know, idyllic, but to, to be able to call their own shots, to have some sovereignty over how they would organize their economies and how they would organize their lives. Um, that that's sort of the subtext of what all of their critiques are. So, um, so it's hard to even use a word like development because it's so fraught with the his, history and current dynamics of how it's been defined. Um, so that's uh, people are are rejecting that as well. Yeah. Um, off of that, so because of this idea of development, there's like this strong almost like peer pressure for um quote unquote less developed nations to be a part of the global market right right? and um i just want to i just want to hear from you like the implications of those countries of like almost being forced to partake in a global market that's continuing to um divide wealth resources like for example cash crops um, palm oil, cocoa, be- um, cocoa beans, uh, coffee beans, that's land that could be used to actually for subsistent agriculture to feed people. Yeah. But because of the pressure of, yeah, right. people that live there, not, ju- not like, you know, ex- exporting, yeah. but it could be used to feed people. Mm-hmm. But instead, there's this pressure that you have to be a part of the global market. So you're going to have to use this land to grow stuff that other nations need. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fundamentally the root of the problem. We need to examine the global economy out as it's currently structured. And and frankly, there are plenty of countries um, where people would really want that re-examination to take place. But since we have these institutions like the World Trade Organization and other sort of larger uh, uh, organizations that, that 
that powerful governments can exert more power through, um, it's difficult to, to have those kinds of discussions, and it's difficult to imagine a future that doesn't have those kind of exploitations that you're talking about. Um, definitely the growing of cash crops, that's a huge issue in terms of strain on the environment and uh, forest-dwelling people not having access to resources. This is, uh, you know, if we look at, at development, we've created some systems that might be making money, but that are actually increasing people's poverty, increasing their hunger. They no longer have access to the resources that they used to have. So we could say that we've succeeded um, on, like, if we look at World Bank measures of, of income, average income, or that kind of but that, we know that doesn't tell us anything. If eight of the wealthiest people on the planet have the same amount of money as 3.5 billion people, then we know that, that averaging that out is not going to tell us anything about the existence of the day-to-day -day ex existence of people at the upper echelons or the lower echelons. So yeah, major problems. Big problems. <laughs> Do you think it, it's even possible to make some changes within the time limit that we've been given uh, by 2030 mm -hmm. to make the changes necessary to avoid catastrophe? Uh, within the confines of our capitalist society? So no, with our current system. Both economic and political, with our. Economic and political, no, that needs to change. That's the first part that needs to change. Um, we can't just put a carbon tax. We can't just, I mean, what we see here is that there is no incentive within our current system to make transformations um, that need to happen at the scale they need to happen. So like, for example, we're developing technology to have electric cars. We're not developing technology for public transportation. So we're still using the old model that is extremely resource intensive. Maybe it's electricity, but where does that electricity come from? Coal-fired power plant. Exactly. And even if it's a solar plant, the car itself used massive amounts of resources to, to Get make the batteries, it, exactly. or just the whole thing. I mean, if you think of all the resources that go into building this like pod thing that you're then driving around in, uh, I mean, and yeah, the solar panels took energy. I mean, the whole thing is so resource intensive. If you were to make a train where you stick a whole bunch of people on it and they go in one direction, it's a whole different ball of wax in terms of energy use. So we have not, we need to shift our thinking massively and we can't do that without political and economic change. Um, I think that's a great place to transition to some- Current events. Current events. Um, current events. I mean, the world is shit uh, and our country <laughs> is on fire, but hey. But viva la revolution. Yeah. I didn't we know we are, could curse on the pod. Yeah, we can curse on the pod, so that is fine. I made the pod explicit, so <laughs> we can curse. Uh, Yay, we shit is fucked. pot stocks and... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, pot stocks and... Uh, and cursing. And I think that might be the title of the pod, pot stocks. <laughs> pot stocks with Lauren Eastwood. Um, so I think we should talk about the Green New Deal. Yeah. Everybody else is. But you know what's really funny is that um, I looked into it a little bit just be you know beyond reading through it, but mm -hmm. kind of like as the social scientist would like kind of looking digging deeper. I didn't know that 
the phrase was first used in 2007 by Thomas Friedman, who is very conservative in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so he was in he so he did write the earth is flat and a couple other things that um that uh would be kind of you know, I mean he he wrote some stuff that some semi-liberal people find to be accessible and interesting. Mm-hmm. But he he's he writes for um uh the New York Times and the New Yorker and and he used this term the green new deal saying and it makes sense because he thinks about things in terms of market models. Mm-hmm. Um He's very much a, you know, thinking about things in terms of economic issues, but also he has concerns about environmental issues. So, so it was, it would be much more palatable coming from him, this kind of like old white guy who talks in a very conservative sense, than from the folks who are now presenting it. AOC. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he wasn't being, he was never. Um, you know, targeted as being a socialist or any of that stuff. He didn't have to say, oh, well, this was part of our history. The New Deal built up our, you know, economy after the Great Depression, blah, blah, blah. He didn't have to give all that history. But it's just interesting that it's so threatening now because of who it's coming from. And and granted, it has different components to it than it did when he was talking about it. But, but it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility well that's that's the beautiful thing the way people have been talking about this the way diane feinstein brought it up uh at her office was saying that it it isn't possible to get it done um and did she mean politically or infrastructurally uh, or she didn't in the video she did not elaborate she said that she and a like a wing of the democratic party had their own plan uh, their own version of the green new deal but it wasn't and that they were going to take care of it. But, but the idea, the idea <laughs> Don't you is, worry your pretty little head about it. We got this. Is that the, the Green New Deal proposal from AOC's office was, is bold, very bold. The, the language in it was it, – it's saying that we need to have a mass mobilization on the scale that we had for the actual New New Deal. Um, oh, and so what's so bold about that? You know it, what I mean? No, like, exactly. It, so it's, yes and no. Mark Twain, there's a really good quote I like um, from Mark Twain. Um, History doesn't repeat itself, but it oftentimes rhymes. <laughs> and I think, this is a, I think this is a great example of that. Um, whereas the New Deal want, sought to jumpstart the economy and get us back on track and brought us into, well, brought us with it, with World War II, into the age that all of the baby boomers had to enjoy. I'm sure every baby boomer that's listening definitely loved all their infrastructure that they right. got to drive on. Must have been nice Must've not been having nice. any potholes. <laughs> um, but I think that the Green New Deal in its current form, the proposal now, is definitely going to take a lot of courage from a lot of, of our politicians. And I think that, like you said before, with all of the young people and all of the kids and the teenagers that are serving the federal government right now, with all those people pushing the government, I think we could actually get something, not in its current state, but something along the lines of this, passed. Yeah. But the stuff that I want to see passed, and it's pertinent to our discussion today, uh, is uh, a couple pages in. Um, I'm going to quote from it now. Uh, the The Green New Deal talks about it doesn't just address the economic and environmental issues. It also addresses a lot of the justice issues 
that weren't addressed by the original New Deal. Um, so it's somewhere here, uh, the Green New Deal to promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth referred to in this resolution as frontline and vulnerable communities. That to me was, should be, the thing that gets almost everybody behind it. Right. It I mean, almost everybody's listed there except for a bunch of old white guys who have who a ton have of money. money. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the sad thing is is that those... Are the ones who would either have the power who, to pass this reg resolution exactly. or not, but um, yeah. I think it's interesting, though, that including uh, de-industrialized communities in here is a huge step because currently the Republican Party and the Trump administration are trying to play this off as is... Fox News, um, trying to play this off as socialism and that we're going to take away everybody's cars, you're not going to be able to fly, and that it's going to negatively affect the coal communities and the fossil fuel-based communities of like the Rust Belt and the Heartland. I think it's really interesting that you know has has a social implication in the plan for the Green New Deal because um, when we talk about environmentalism, people tend to just think maybe we're just trying to save the, the trees, the polar bears, may, you know, maybe, you know, conserve natural resources. But this, it paints a picture that, you know, there's an environmental problem, but it's also going to affect these marginalized peoples. And I think that's very important that they impl implemented social, you know, um, problems and, you know, solutions to this plan. Yeah, I really like the fact that it doesn't disconnect the economy and the environment. Um, so I, I think that speaks, Ramel, to what you're saying in the sense that um, it's not just a green new deal where everybody's going to go around collecting litter and we're creating jobs to, you know, clean up the earth. It's very much... It is one way to create jobs, though. Well, yes, we, and I would, that's I, an idea. I would advocate Let's not throw that idea <laughs> just around. Yes, that'll be the, probably what ends up getting passed as a resolution. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, so if we say our economy needs to transform, I mean, it really recognizes the fact that our economy is completely fucked right now. And it, it is. I mean, and it's been centuries of in the making. I mean, you know... Reagan's neoliberalism did nothing to help us, and it's a resurgence of that ideology that people can't seem to quite get that that's what's been going on, bringing jobs back to the U.S. in the traditional sense of what kinds of jobs we had is makes zero sense uh, from a business standpoint or any other standpoint for that matter. So what this does is recognize those inherent contradictions there and the fact that poverty in the United States and marginalization in the United States has been caused by those same dynamics that people are trying to argue we need to address in some sort of piecemeal way. This, I, I just see it as much more comprehensive and, and addressing those issues that you know, if we're going to change anything, we need to get at the heart of the economy. We get we need to get at the heart of politics. I think a good a good precursor to this, a great way to look at it, is the solution to acid rain during yeah during George H W Bush um, 
rest in peace. <laughs> um, uh, we instituted uh, cap and trade deals, and it was um, I'm t- currently taking uh, sociology of social change and social movements with Linda Ames, um, and in that class we we've discussed. Uh, the way that the Environmental Defense Fund was the f- an organization that first started to bridge the gap between environmental issues and economic issues, and they were pretty. That was a pretty wild idea to be like, "Hey, let's try to work with the economic system to solve this." Um, I think this is a jump that's been twenty years in the making. Mm-hmm. To all right, we've been working with the the economic system. Let's try to re-fucking structure the whole thing. Right. Um, so I, I, if we're trying to frame this in uh, the Green New Deal proposal as not just an economic thing, but like it's a social change movement that we've seen with the kids and stuff, we need to think about it in the fact that like who's organizing it, how are we going to make sure that this social change sticks? Like we need to not just change the economic system or the political system, we need to change the way that people view the environment in our economy, the way people view the issues that are addressed in this, and we need to make sure that everybody's on the same page and can agree that this is in everybody's best interest. Right, and that's a huge, like this, that's where we need uh, folks who are very tuned into how to promote a a messaging, Um, because my concern at this particular juncture of fake news and where somebody can blatantly we have evidence of one thing and somebody says, well, that's not true. And people are like, well, I heard it. It's not true. I mean, there's this weird dynamic going on where almost every day that I, I mean, I get sort of a kick out of it when it's Trevor Noah making fun of it or that kind of thing. But it's really distressing, particularly as an educator, to see this real blurring of the lines between truth and and fiction in such a way that you see certain things being mobilized for a particular cause that totally dismisses the actual veracity of what's going on. And yeah, and so I, my concern is this is already being dismissed as socialist. I mean, people don't even know what that means. But anyway, um, we need messaging. We, we need- uh, Bold actions. Yeah. People who are, I think we need more young people Absolutely. to take the reins on it, as we've seen already. Uh, we need more more young scientists. We need more young politicians. We need people who are the ones affected with these issues to be represented and to fight for, to, we all need to be able to work together and fight to get this stuff passed. like to thank Ramel and Lauren for being on the pod today. If you have any questions or comments, please email me or DM me at char underscore Olson 16 on Instagram or Twitter. Important links to most of the stuff talked about in this episode can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening.